Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. The hip. It's an area in orthopedics that has seen an exponential growth in research over the last several decades. I don't recall ever talking about hip impingement during my fellowship training 20 years ago. Yet cam and pincer impingement, as well as labral tears on the hip, are something on the differential for every patient I see with hip and groin pain. But as Thanksgiving has passed, I'm thankful for modern medicine as my wife recently had her hip replaced. Congenital hip dysplasia was the catalyst for the need for a hip replacement at a younger age, so I've had the hip on my mind a little more than usual. That means it's time for another research review episode, this time focusing on the hip. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I have several articles to discuss today, each with a slightly different slant regarding the hip. The first is particular interest to me in that my wife and I have been lifelong runners. The article is from the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine from November of 2023, and the lead author is Dr. Bill Roberts, who has been on the podcast before. The article is titled, A Pilot Study, Do Children Who Run Marathons Have More Osteoarthritis in the Lower Extremity as Adults? My wife and I both ran our marathons as adults, but I've had an interest in the bad rap that running gets and the reports that running causes arthritis. Dr. Roberts has followed the risk of children running marathons with his work in Minneapolis over the years, and if you're interested in learning more about his research, I will have a few articles in the show notes that you can link to. This was a survey study recruited through social media and running-related organization mailing lists. Because of the nature of this survey, it's really unclear the actual reach of how many have had the opportunity to fill out the survey, but two groups were created, those who ran high school cross-country but didn't run a marathon below the age of 18, and those who ran a marathon before the age of 18. The survey collected typical demographics, but also looking at family history of osteoarthritis, joint replacements of the knees or hips, personal history of osteoarthritis or any joint pain, stiffness, or soreness, and whether they were still running or competing as an adult, any history of ACL injury, running a marathon as an adult, number of marathons completed, and reasons for running a marathon as a child. There were 467 adults who responded in this survey, and 319 met the inclusion criteria and fully completed the survey. 123 of the participants at least ran one marathon under the age of 18, and then 196 ran just high school cross-country alone without running a marathon below the age of 18. The prevalence of, and again, this is important, self-reported osteoarthritis in those who completed at least one marathon as a child was 10%. Those who ran just high school cross-country without a marathon running under the age of 18 was 7%. So not a big difference there, 10 versus 7%. 24% of child marathon runners and then 21% of the high school cross-country runners reported daily or weekly joint pain. Interesting. Uh, And I don't know if this was necessarily specific just for that area there, but certainly, like I said, they did have a high percentage of daily or weekly joint pain. The mean age of those who ran a first marathon was age 15. So again, we have to remember this a little bit because there's a lot of emphasis put on the child marathon runner. You hear about the six-year-old or the eight-year-old, the rare cases of kids that participate and complete a marathon, and everybody gets all excited and upset about this. But these are really kids that are already pretty much starting high school age. 
when we're not already having them do running events as it is already with cross country. Current age means were 40 in the child marathoners and 36 in those who did high school cross country. So when you're looking at this cohort here, this is really not a cohort of people in their 50s, 60s, 70s to really get a good uh, assessment of when we would expect to start to see a lot of troubles of osteoarthritis developing. Definitely a younger age cohort here. 91% of those who were child marathoners were still running as opposed to 97% of those who were just high school cross country runners were still running. So a little higher percentage there. 55% of those who are high school cross country runners were still actually competing as opposed to only 39% of child marathoners who were still actually competing. And then 78% of child marathoners ran a marathon as an adult with a mean number of 17 and 80% of those who only did high school cross country ran a marathon as an adult. So actually a slightly higher number, not by much, completing a mean of 10 marathons. So those who actually ran a marathon under the age of 18 ran a higher number, 17 versus 10. So obviously there was that interest that there that kind of continued as they got into an adult. Obviously there's some limitations of the study as it was a self-selecting study with the survey here going to a select group and then people had the ability to self-participate or not. So that does create some limitations. The diagnosis of osteoarthritis or joint pain is self-reported rather than confirmation from a clinic visit, a physical exam, confirmation on radiographs that there is actual osteoarthritis there and to what degree. And this was meant to be a pilot study here. It's self-admitted to be a pilot study. It's also still a younger cohort than we would expect to see any significant osteoarthritis. But we do have some information here. And since this was considered a pilot study, it certainly gives areas to further investigate this area. But we're not seeing any big smoking gun here for this cohort of self-reported child marathoner runners. And again, I, I want to use that with a little grain of salt. This is really primarily a study of mostly teenage marathon runners who competed before they reached true adulthood, the way we define adulthood. And there really wasn't a significant difference between these two groups as far as osteoarthritis, joint pain, what have you. So again, I think it's an interesting study here. It was interesting to look at when I saw it pop up. I was really interested. And when I saw it was done by Bill Roberts, I was definitely interested because I think he probably has the majority of articles that are out there in the scientific community looking at child marathoners just from his work with the marathon up in the Twin Cities. Looking at our second study, this was published in Knee Surgery, Sports Traumatology, and Arthroscopy in July of 2023. The title of this article is Majority of Competitive Soccer Players Return to Soccer Following Hip Arthroscopy for Ephemeral Acetabular Impingement. Female and older age players are less likely to return to soccer. This is by Niv Maram, and I apologize if I got the name wrong, and colleagues. This appears to be a collaborative effort from researchers from Israel, as well as the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. The study here was conducted using patients from the Hospital for Special Surgery Hip Preservation Registry. Patients who undergo staged or simultaneous bilateral hip arthroscopy are enrolled in the registry, and this registry database was reviewed retrospectively to identify a cohort of self-reported competitive soccer players at all levels who underwent primary hip arthroscopy for femoral acetabular impingement between 2010 and 2017. Indications for surgery were findings of femoral acetabular impingement and labral tearing, and they failed to improve from non-operative treatment methods. A standardized post-operative course was followed, and expected return to sport was typically six to eight months following this protocol. Return to soccer was determined via a questionnaire that focused on soccer play and performance prior to hip symptoms, after presentation, and after surgery. The questionnaires were administered via telephone or email. Players who denied playing at least one game of soccer per week when in season or denied being competitive players, meaning at a professional, collegiate, high school, or club level, were excluded from the study. 
There were 235 players that were identified in the registry who self-reported playing competitive soccer. 117, or about 50% of these, were reachable by phone or email. 30 of these denied being active soccer players prior to the injury. Therefore, a total of 87 competitive level soccer players were included. 32 of these athletes, which was roughly 37% of the cohort, underwent bilateral arthroscopy. 85% of these were staged and 15% were simultaneous. That means 119 total hips were included in the study. 57% of these were being male, with a mean follow-up of six plus or minus two years. So that's a decent follow-up we're looking at here. 87% underwent labral repair, and 86% underwent femoral cam decompression. 65 players, or 75% of those, reported returning to soccer. 43 players, which were 49% of all included players, returned to a pre-injury level of play or better. 85% of players who returned to soccer and 63% of all included players reported returning to a better level of play compared to their pre-surgery, but not their post-injury level of play. The mean return to play was 33 weeks, plus or minus 26 weeks. So we got a big, long, broad range here. So this is roughly eight plus months before they were returning to play for these particular surgeries. 61.5% of those who returned to soccer reported that they were still actively playing soccer at the conclusion of the study. So that's actually pretty good there. For the 39% who stopped playing, the mean time of playing soccer post-operatively was 2.7 plus or minus 1.8 years. So you know, again, they get another three years or so of playing soccer after surgery before they stopped. And the most common reasons for stopping was their life circumstances in 46%. That's probably the case for the vast majority of us as far as reasons for stopping our activities as we start to get into adulthood is our life circumstances. Other physical limitations or injuries was the reason in 29%. Of those who did return to soccer, 92% reported satisfaction with the surgery and would choose to repeat it. 25% did not return to soccer following their arthroscopy, and the most common reasons were pain or discomfort in 50%, fear of re-injury in 32%, which is a real thing that we need to make sure that we are accounting for when we're talking to our athletes when we are getting them back to play. We're giving them permission to get back to play, but they may not be comfortable yet to do so. And other physical limitations or injuries were reported in 32%. 64% who didn't return to soccer still actually reported satisfaction with the surgery overall. When they did further analysis of those who returned versus those who did not, it showed a statistically significant difference where younger players at the time of surgery were more likely than those older to return. The mean age of those returning was 21.1 versus 25.9 in those who did not. BMI, playing position, leg dominance, bilateral surgery were not found to have a difference in the two groups. Female players were actually 3.7 times less likely to return compared to males. And for every one-year increase in age at the time of surgery, the odds of returning to soccer decreased by 10.5%. The complications postoperatively were the development of heterotopic ossification in three athletes, one of whom actually had surgery for that. All three of those who had these postoperative heterotopic ossification issues did return to soccer. Three other players underwent the same side revision hip arthroscopy at slightly over a year after their original surgery. Two of those athletes returned. Three other players underwent a same side periacetabular osteotomy at average of 44 months post-op because of instability symptoms. There are a few limitations of this study. Half of those in the registry couldn't be reached, and the return to soccer questionnaire was not a validated questionnaire. However, I do believe it gives some good soccer-specific information, especially for my surgical colleagues, hoping to provide some information for patients and some expectations for return to play in the post-operative course. I'm not sure about those of you that are non-surgical colleagues here, how you approach things when you talk about surgical cases and surgical expectations. I know my personal preference is I prefer not to give specific dates or timeframes or expectations following a surgery because when I send someone on to my surgical colleagues, 
having multiple surgical colleagues, they all have their own different nuances as far as what they may do. There may be some different expectations or things that they may have to address from a surgical standpoint. So I really want that discussion to be had by the surgeon with the patient. So unfortunately, a lot of patients, sometimes uh, they get a little frustrated at times because you're not giving them those timeframes. But again, I just express to them, I really don't want to misspeak. I want them to be able to have the discussion with you. They'll talk to you about your specific case as far as what the expectations are. But this does give us also a little information as a non-surgeon, just looking at what are some expectations based on this study for people that are sent on for hip arthroscopy for a soccer-specific population as far as when you may expect to be able to get back to play. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion on the research review about the hip. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. And now back to the podcast. The final study I'm going to review expands a bit on some previous research we reviewed on the apophysis and specifically avulsion fractures in the pelvis. The study was published in April of 2023 in the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics from the lead author, Samantha Ferraro, and included a previous guest from the podcast, Dr. Ben Hayworth from Boston Children's Hospital. This is a retrospective review over 15 years from the years 2005 to 2020. It evaluated patients ages 10 to 19 with a diagnosis of avulsion injuries, but not apophysitis in the hip. There were 719 eligible fractures in 709 patients that were identified. The mean age was 14.6 years. 78% of fractures occurred in males, which is what we tend to see in in previous studies that have looked at avulsion fractures in the pelvis. 57% occurred on the right side. Running and sprinting and kicking accounted for over half of all avulsion fractures in the pelvis. Soccer was the most common sport identified with 37% of avulsion fractures, followed by football at 11%, baseball and softball at 10%, ice hockey 9%, and then track and field and cross country at 9%. And then there was a smorgasbord of other sports that followed at a much smaller percentage. The anterior inferior iliac spine was the most common site affected in avulsion fractures in this cohort at 33.4% of patients. 
The anterior superior iliac spine, or the ASIS, was next at 30.5%. The ischial tuberosity was 19.3% of all avulsion fractures in this cohort. This was a little surprising to me, and this is a little bit different than what I personally have experienced in my practice. And this may be just patient population that's being seen at these centers as opposed to Boston Children's as opposed to us in St. Louis, although we do have a lot of hockey players with this. The lesser choke enter was 10.6% of all avulsion fractures. That's a little bit high. I haven't seen a ton of lesser trochanter enter or avulsion fractures. I certainly have seen them, but not as frequently as the iliac crest, which was only 6% in this cohort. And I see a lot more of those. And that may be because I do see a fair amount of runners in my practice. And with runners, we tend to see a lot more iliac crest type injuries, especially when it comes to track season. And then the greater tuberosity, which I would certainly agree with because I don't remember seeing, I don't even know if I've seen one of these, but the greater tuberosity was uh, 0.3% of all avulsion fractures in this cohort. The anterior superior iliac spine and iliac crest fractures were most more common in patients older than those of other avulsion fractures. The anterior superior iliac spine was more commonly associated with running injuries than other avulsion fractures, and the anterior inferior iliac spine was more common related to kicking, and that certainly makes sense with the different muscle groups we're talking about there, which that also correlates with what the most common sport is for anterior inferior iliac spine avulsion fractures, which was soccer accounting for 54%. And then in lesser trochanter fractures, the most common sport was ice hockey, accounting for 39% of those. And I have definitely seen that. The trochanter avulsion fractures that I've seen have definitely been more frequently in ice hockey individuals. About 22% had prodromal symptoms for up to four weeks prior to the fracture presentation. And what that means, if you're not familiar with prodromal symptoms, that means they were having some level of pain or discomfort in the area before they actually experienced their avulsion fracture. This was most common with the iliac crest avulsion fractures compared with other avulsion fracture sites. And that's certainly, again, not unusual. What I tend to see a lot of these iliac crest avulsion fractures is I tend to see them as a kind of a spectrum of a stress injury to the bone that's progressing over the course of their track season when they're doing lots of sprinting. They keep sprinting. They think that it's all, it's the, the, the never ending hip flexor diagnosis for most of these. It's just my hip flexor. No big deal. They keep participating through these. They keep having pain. And then eventually they get to the point where they weaken the bone enough that they create the avulsion injury with a quick sprint for the iliac crest avulsion fracture. So I do tend to see personally in my office, iliac crest avulsion injuries do oftentimes tend to have a more prodromal just from my personal experience with this. There was also found to be a delay in presentation for ischial tuberosity avulsion fractures. And this again is also something I've seen and I would echo is typically my experience has been, which oftentimes, again, this gets misdiagnosed as the high hamstring injury or just a hamstring strain in general without focusing on the fact that it is up high by the pelvis where the symptoms occur. It was also found in the study that patients with a higher BMI, there may be a role in their avulsion fracture risk. And this was the first study that really looked at this. So of note, this is the largest series of its kind of particularly looking at avulsion fractures in the pelvis in our basically childhood to adolescent age group here. It is also suggested to be the first study to identify a predominance of right versus left. And it also confirms some of the more common sources of injury for specific avulsion fractures, the running for ASIS, and that would also be the case typically for iliac crest, and then kicking injuries for the anterior inferior iliac spine. It's also the first to describe these prodromal symptoms prior to injury, particularly for iliac crest avulsion. So what does this study actually add to our knowledge base here? It's, it's providing more information, some more epidemiologic data that we have looking at this particular type of injury. I certainly think it would be helpful in the future to look at, you know, are there ways that we can help facilitate the recovery for this? My typical description for most patients is that this is going to be a six-week injury. We really got to let it heal for six weeks, and then we can talk about working our way back into activity. So I don't really have a 
a shorter course for most of these avulsion fractures in the pelvis to get people back. It's a rare situation for me to send someone on to the surgeon. Again, the, the big one here tends to be the ischial tuberosity one as to whether or not that may need surgical management but I don't recall any other avulsion fractures in the pelvis that have actually sent on for surgical treatment. I'm always amazed at how impressive the lesser trochanter avulsion fractures are on x-ray and thinking, man, how is this one going to heal? How is their iliopsoas going to fire properly with this? But amazingly, they do seem to heal pretty well radiographically when I've taken care of patients with these particular avulsion fractures with lesser trochanter. So I'd like to thank you for taking the time to join me for another research review episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. You can find links to all three of the articles referenced today, as well as additional research studies by Bill Roberts on our show notes. You can find us on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call that place over there, as well as Instagram and threads at Peds Sports Pod. That's P-E-D-S and then sports as plural, P-O-D. You can also find our entire podcast library available at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. And you can stream us on your favorite streaming platform. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform as well, so you never miss a new episode. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.